Now, I'm not sure about you if you remember when the internet was first uh, brought out. Um, I'm talking about your very first experience with the internet. Even before there was such a thing as the World Wide Web, do people remember when you had to actually dial into specific servers? Do you remember that? You know, and, you know, and you'd, you'd hook up into a particular server, uh, and whatever they had on their server, you could access. I remember one of the very first experiences I had with my mate. I was in my latter years of high school, and we looked at something. It was called a death calculator. It was a death calculator. It was one of those things where you put in your birth date and it would spit out the supposed day of your death. Anyone remember those things? I mean, that's a bit of a fancy version of it now. Anyone remember that? Does anyone remember? Yeah. I mean, basically, it was, it was stupid as. It was wildly popular, but completely stupid. It was just a random date generator. Gave you a different date every time you went to check your details again. But the interesting thing... And I mention it is, the reason I mention it is because our interest in death has not lessened. Death is one of those topics that continues to fascinate and terrify us at the same time. It's one of those ones where you can't look, but you can't look away. You know those sort of things? Humanity, it seems, to have a literal, morbid fascination with death and dying. You know, even the idea of the death calculator, it hasn't gone away. I was recently reading uh, an article about a group of Canadian doctors who have released a more sophisticated version in 2021 of a death calculator, but they call it the respect calculator. R-E-S-P-E-C. Someone needs to show me the Aretha Franklin song. They didn't add a T. Anyways, it stands for this. It stands for Risk Evaluation for Support Predictions for Elder Life Communities. And they claim to be able to predict your death within five years, a five-year window, based on the declines in your daily activities, such as eating and bathing and walking and things like this. And they've set this calculator up. They've inputted data from 496,000 elderly folk that they collected daily data of their activities in these areas over six years. Can you imagine? That's a lot of data. And they say now that you plug your data in and it will calculate a five-year window in which you'll likely die. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. But unless, as I think about it, unless they develop an add-on, you know, accurate hit by a bus or eaten by a shark predictor, uh, I'm not sure that the respect calculator is actually going to really do the job. It's going to somewhat leave you in the dark still about the precise date of your death. And so an even more interesting question I want to pose, rather than the particular day of your death, is this. If you were able to know with clarity the day of your demise, how would that affect the way you live right now? Even if you were given a five-year window on which, in which your death would occur, what difference would that make to your life tomorrow? Would you finally go home and turn off the television and put down your iPhone and write down the bucket list? Actually, you'll probably use your iPhone for that. I'll leave that aside. But would you, what would make the list of your bucket list? Now, climb a mountain, ride a bull, learn another language, run for politics, read more books, write a book. What would seem to you, what would you consider a worthy venture to constitute a life well lived? And then suppose for a moment that you could guarantee that you would tick everything off that list in the given time frame. Would you then feel ready to die? Would you be happy to brace, embrace rather the cold, stark reality of death? 
I climbed Mount Everest. I'm ready. What? I couldn't. I was scrambling to work out, uh, to work out who said this. I can't remember who said it to me once. But you know what the definition of a fool is? It's the man who lives his entire life unprepared to die. It's the definition of a fool. So the question's got to be, folks, how do you prepare well for that death? How do you prepare well for your death? That's a question worth pondering. I want you to keep that in your mind as we turn to Daniel, to Daniel 5 today. If you were here last week, you'll notice that Daniel 4 and 5 sort of form part of a cautionary tale, if you will, about life, about death, and indeed even about that something more significant, eternity. Now, as, we, as you just turn up your, your, your Bibles to, um, or your devices to uh, Daniel 5, a couple of quick important notes just to, uh, about the way this account is written. Firstly, it's important to realise that there are several decades in between the end of chapter 4, well, several years, likely decades, between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. There's a new king in Babylon. It's King Belshazzar. In fact, history tells us that King Nebuchadnezzar's grandson is King Belshazzar. He ruled as a co-regent with his father, King uh, Nabonidus, after King Nebuchadnezzar's demise. I point this out to you so that you don't get confused by that ancient Near Eastern, very much Old Testament tradition of referring to people in their ancestral lines as the father of or the son of. Did you notice how it works in the text like that? You notice that it refers to... King Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father. Don't think biological father. In this, no, think ancestral lines. In the same way that the, the, you might remember the song, you know, Abraham is considered the father of many nations. You know the song, Father Abraham, many sons has, I am one of them. That sort of idea. Okay, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Yeah, Luke, you know it obviously. It's in the same way that, in fact, Jesus is referred to as the son of David by blind Bartimaeus in Mark 10, 47. Bartimaeus doesn't think that Jesus' biological father is David. He realises there is several generations in between, but this is a common, uh, common way in the ancient Near East to refer to ancestral lines, the son of, the father of. Don't get confused by that, all right? But let's have a look at this text, and let's, let's have a look at this son of King Nebuchadnezzar, King Belshazzar. Let's look at what is the, really the first and only significant reference to Belshazzar's life in the Bible. Because tragically, it's one marked by a celebration of pride, blasphemy and idolatry. Look at how it begins in chapter uh, 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Actually, straight away, it's more literally that he drank wine before them or in front of them. It's part of this you know, pride-filled spectacle that Belshazzar is bunging on here. And it doesn't just start and end in a good old-fashioned booze-up with a thousand of your, you know, your best friends or the most influential and powerful people in your kingdom. No, Belshazzar wants to ratchet this up a level. He wants to make this a night to remember. So what does he do? Verse 2, he gives orders to bring in the gold and the silver goblets that King Nebuchadnezzar his granddad had seized from Yahweh's temple in Jerusalem. Let's drink wine out of them. Now, you've got to understand it at this point, friends. He has not, it's not like he's run out of cups to drink from. It's not like he's run around the kitchen looking through the cupboards and, oh my goodness, how embarrassing. I didn't have it. No. No, he's making a statement here. He's making not just a pride-filled statement now, he's making a blasphemous statement. 
It's likely, I think, deliberately aimed at both Nebuchadnezzar and the God of Israel. You see, his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar seized those, emples, uh, those, uh, those items from a temple and still treated them with a degree of reverence by putting them in the temple of his God. He didn't dare drink from them. This is a bit of a slight at his grandfather. What a wuss. Wouldn't even use the gold cups. And it's definitely a blasphemous disrespect to the God of Israel, to Yahweh, to whom these goblets were created, dedicated. In fact, Belshazzar thinks so much of himself and so little of Yahweh at this point that he's not just happy to crack out the gold goblets. He's happy to let everyone use them. His noblemen, his wives, even his concubines. In fact, we heard that in verse 3. They all drank from these consecrated items. And if, if that isn't bad enough, he even then adds to this pride and blasphemy the further charge of idolatry. As he takes these articles, first created and dedicated to Yahweh, and he leads people in toasts and the worship of false gods. It's idolatry. Look at it there in verse 4. Read it with me. It says, As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Now just think about that for a second. Just get in your mind this picture, this celebration of pride and blasphemy and idolatry that's on display here in Belshazzar's action. It is brash to say the least. It's disgraceful. But I also want to ask, is it any less present in our culture today? Is our day and age, is our culture less filled with pride and blasphemy and idolatry than Belshazzar is exhibiting? Or are people and groups in powerful positions even today still inclined to be puffed up by pride and an overinflated sense of their own self-importance? Happy to blaspheme the God of creation as though he's a non-event, a non-existent, not necessary to think about entity. Even happy to set up and worship their own idols based on the falsehoods of my truth as though that can be something different and valid against the truth. Friends, our world is a world full of the same pride and blasphemy and idolatry. And if we're honest enough, and if you're genuinely honest enough to think about it, we're all guilty of the same often. I don't mean that we're all toasting the gods of bronze, iron, stone, gold, whatever. You're not using consecrated goblets in your idolatry, neither am I. But make no mistake, every act of mine and your sin against God, every expression of, is an expression rather of pride, of blasphemy, of idolatry against the God of the universe. It doesn't matter if that lasts for a moment or a minute or a month or a millennia. I like alliteration. Every act of you and I, when we are expressing our autonomy over God's good design for life, every time I think, speak and act as if I know better than the God of the universe, I'm making much of myself and less of him. I'm making myself appear big and the God who is big appear meagre. Friends, we all do it. Pride-filled, prone to blasphemy, prone to idolatry in varying degrees. 
And if you think for a second that's not you, if you go, no, no, you got me wrong, Flint, you don't know me, then here's my challenge to you. Just live the perfect life just for the rest of the week. In fact, I'll give you just for the rest of the day. The devastating truth is you can't and neither can I. So the now the pressing question becomes when you accept that fact is what is the God of the universe going to do about it? Is he going to allow this little supposed king to act in rebellion and stupidity or was not? Or what's he going to do about it? You know, King Belshazzar all but asks this question out loud in his pride-filled display. You can almost sort of hear the taunting or the tempting or the goading of God in his actions. Here I am, Yahweh. Here I am, drinking from your cups. What are you going to do about it, big wheels? Make no mistake about it, friends. God is not obligated to answer immediately. It's not as if we can control God by goading him into action. Don't think that you can. Yet on this occasion, he does answer immediately. We heard it read out there, verse 5 and 6, describes God's supernatural response, an unembodied hand writing on the wall, and not just any message, it's a cryptic message. It's a message that no one, not even the wise men of Babylon, could decipher. In fact, this is the point where it sounds also familiar with the rest of Daniel to this point, doesn't it? You know, God gives some sort of overt message to a king. This time it's divine graffiti. None of the Babylonian magic men have a clue what to make of it. The king's nervous. It's not hard to understand why King Belshazzar is so terrified. Did you notice his reaction in verse 6? Do you notice what it says? Colour drains from his face, his knees wobble and then give out completely. Imagine the transition here. This same proud, brash, boastful king is now in a puddle of his own making on the floor. Unable to deny what has clearly happened in front of everyone. An undeniable spiritual event. Terrified by his inability to know what it means. What is he going to do with that? At this point, I want to say thank God for mothers because I don't know about you, but when the going gets tough, the toughest go to their mothers. All right? And it's no different here, in fact. In fact, verse 10, it's amid King Belshazzar's hysteria that the queen mother is the one calming voice. Look what she says in verse 10. Have a look at it with me. Read it along. She steps up and says, O king, live forever. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. Now, friends, this is unambiguously a reference to Daniel. We've heard him described in this exact fashion time and time again in the first few chapters. A man who has the spirit of the holy gods is the Babylonian way of expressing it. But the stupid thing here that you ought not miss is that Belshazzar should have known this already. Daniel himself will lay that charge very shortly. But notice the stress the Queen Mother puts on the fact that Belshazzar ought to have not been ignorant of this fact. In fact, keep looking at the back end of verse 11. This is what she says. She says, In the time of your father, he, that's Daniel, was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like the gods. Can Neb king Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king... I say he appointed him chief of the magicians and et cetera, et cetera, on and on she goes. That's not a misprint. 
Did you notice how often she repeats King Nebuchadnezzar's name, your father, your father, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar? You know, that famous relative, the one you've got just a generation back, you used to call him Bob, bounce on his knee, pointy beard, like making people's houses into rubble, that guy. She's not doing this because he might not remember and she needs to jog his memory. She's doing this to point out his stupidity for not remembering. His ignorance is already condemning. Regardless, though, Daniel is ushered in. The usual pomp and ceremony uh, carries on. Belshazzar, verse 16, what does he say? He says to Daniel, if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made third highest ruler in the kingdom. It's almost like he regains his composure, puffs his chest out for the help. You notice Daniel's response though? Because again, there's something very clearly different about this relationship between Daniel and this king compared with that of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Not only does King Belshazzar pretend not to know anything about or notice anything or nothing about Daniel, Daniel himself is very, I want to say, cool towards the king. The reason I say that is, do you remember when Daniel interpreted visions for King Nebuchadnezzar in other chapters? Chapter 4, just last week, for example. Do you remember how Daniel himself expresses genuine personal care and concern for King Nebuchadnezzar? In fact, turn back a page in your Bible and look at chapter 4, verse 19. We heard Daniel lament over the king's dream when he says, 419, My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and the meaning to your adversaries. Daniel's torn up by the vision, by the dream. And then delivers the bad news to King Nebuchadnezzar before counselling him on how to respond. Look at 4.27. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins. Daniel clearly, well, has affection at the very least of some kind for King Nebuchadnezzar. That's all absent from this exchange between Daniel and Belshazzar. In fact, Daniel's response, verse 17, is basically, you can keep your trinkets... I'm not interested in your reward, but I'll tell you what the words mean. And notice how he does this. He doesn't just rush straight to the interpretation. What does he do? Have a look from verse 18 onwards, how he deliberately slows the narrative down. He could go straight to the translation, but he begins with a bit of a brief retelling of everything that happened to King Nebuchadnezzar including Yahweh's humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of his life. And the reason he does this is to make verse 22 hit home all the harder. Look at verse 22 and 23 in Daniel 5. It says this, But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you've set yourself up against the Lord of the heavens, You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That is a hammer blow, isn't it? This is that moment for Belshazzar that you've no, no doubt had in your life at some point, probably as a kid, maybe even as an adult, where the weight of your sinful stupidity is about to come crashing down on your head. When mum or dad or maybe your boss or one of your teachers looks at you square in the eye and says, you ought to know better. 
And the devastating thing is you know that they're 100% right. You've got no excuse. It is a gut shot, disorienting, instant vomit sick is what my kids call it. That moment of instant, I want to throw up. That's the feeling, isn't it? This is that moment for Belshazzar. And then Daniel interprets the writing. Verse 25, he says, this is what it's at. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. As I said, it's a cryptic message. There's a bit of a, actually a bit of a word play going on here. Literally speaking, the words are uh, essentially Aramaic references to coinage. It's a bit like saying, if I can put it in a, in, a, in a literal English sort of sense, it's a bit like saying a dollar, a dollar, two cents, 50 cents. Oh, that's helpful. That would be approximately the value of the coins proportionally as they appear. But more than that, what you can do is then taking the root letters of these coins and you can turn them into verbs using those same letters. You can do this pretty often in Hebrew and Aramaic works like this. There's a, the root letters become the part of the noun and the verbiage. And when you turn them into a verb, it reads numbered, weighed, divided. And of course, Daniel, under the inspiration of God, who is the giver of his wisdom, fills in the rest of the details. Look at verse 26 with me. He says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, which is just the singular of Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Can you imagine hearing that message? That's a concerning message, isn't it? I mean, if King Belshazzar was nervous before he got the interpretation, you'd expect him to be having literal kittens on the floor at this point, wouldn't you? You'd expect some kind of emotional outburst, whether it be anger directed towards Daniel and God for what a rubbish statement you've made, or better still, some kind of pleading for God to flip the script, some sort of impassioned response, something of any feeling at this point. But you notice none's recorded. Instead, all we're left seeing is that, well, Belshazzar seems to accept Daniel's interpretation as true and valid. He gives him the reward for the successful read. And that same night, Belshazzar is assassinated. There's, more, there's much more we could say about the, the verses themselves. You can look at the history and see that most likely that the Persians and the Medes were already circling Babylon at that point. Even as he's throwing a party, they're digging ditches to redirect the river so that they can walk across into his kingdom. Happens to be the fateful night that they breach and kill him. But what do we do with this? What do we do as 21st century hearers? What are the big issues we ought not miss? The lessons from history we would do well to learn from if we've got our eyes open and our ears on. Well, the first and most significant thing I want to convince you of from the text is that there is no safe way and there is no safe time to ignore the God of the universe. Do you know what I mean by Do you understand what I mean by that? It is one of the key lessons to learn from Belshazzar's poor example here. There is no safe way to disregard God Almighty. There's no reasonable time to keep him at an arm's length as though you've got more urgent issues to attend to. Friends, we all need to hear that often. 
Ours is a time in history and a culture where the opportunities for distractions are seemingly endless. We all are busy, I have no doubt about it. In fact, if you can show me a person who isn't busy, I'll show you my collection of hen's teeth and rocking horse poo. It doesn't exist. A couple of my favourite phrases, got to get them in there somehow. We can all very easily fall into this trap of pursuing or focusing on things in life as more urgent and pressing than honouring God above all else. Not many of us are so brazen in our pride and blasphemy and idolatry as Belshazzar. No one here is toasting idols with communion cups, I hope. But we can too easily convince ourselves that the pursuit of even the most noble of things, humanly speaking, good things like work, like accolades, like money, like hobbies, we can easily convince ourselves that they are worthy substitutes over the pursuit of a humble, growing knowledge of God and the service of God. Friends, the pursuit of those things, that is not true. They are not a worthy substitute. They're just pride-filled, blasphemous idolatry of a different order. And do you know the truth about this? Don't feel just the guilt of that statement, of which I bear as well. Hear that God has created you for more than those things. God has created you to know him deeply and find a rest and a satisfaction and a fulfillment in him that will endure forever. Don't sell your life short by keeping him at arm's length, friends. Don't waste your life pursuing things that are guaranteed by definition to spoil, perish or fade. Instead, find that lasting contentment in the only place it is to be found and it's in the restored relationship with God through Christ Jesus. In fact, you realise that even this chapter in Daniel, as does the whole Old Testament, this, this chapter here points us to Jesus. What I mean is, often I fear people, us, we're waiting for this Belshazzar-type moment from God. We're prone to expect, you'll accept, I imagine, we're prone to expect that God owes me some sort of equivalent experience to Belshazzar's writing on the wall moment. You know what I'm talking about there? If you don't, let me get... It's thoughts or statements like, I just wish God would tell me what to do in this circumstance. Just wish I knew what he wanted from me. As if there's no possible way to know how to respond to God outside of a personally addressed, hand-delivered, supernatural experience from God. But friends, that's not true either. In fact, look at how that turned out for King Belshazzar. He did get the personally addressed, literally hand-delivered, pun intended, message from God. And what was the message? It was a message of judgment. It was a mess. It was a divine scolding. Essentially, Belshazzar, you've had every opportunity to humble yourself before me. You've ignored it. You've been weighed on the scales. You've been found wanting. Your time's up. Friends, Jesus is the writing on the wall for our generation. He's the writing on the wall and he has been for every generation since his death and resurrection. Jesus, literally, the word became flesh, John tells us. He's everything you need to know in order to respond to the God of the universe rightly. The time of ignorance is over. You and I and every other person on the planet will have no excuse for ignoring God or sidelining him 
or pretending to have something more urgent and important to attend to, those excuses will not cut it. Now, there's a dozen, there's a dozen places I could go to in the, in the Bible to make this point clear, but let me take you to one. Listen to how Paul puts it in Acts 17, 29. If you want to flick to it in your Bibles, by all means, it should come up on the screen. Danny, is it on there? I think, yeah, it is. Acts 17, 29, Paul speaking to the very religious and yet clueless Athenians about the, their foolish pride, their blasphemous idolatry. He says to them this, he says, Therefore, since we are all God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God has overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? For he set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Do you hear that? Jesus is the writing on the wall. And what's the writing say? He's commanding all people everywhere to repent. That means to quit living in ignorance. As though you don't or can't know how to respond to God, he's given proof to you that he's the right way, the only way to be right with God. He's given proof to you that he is the only judge whose verdict matters. He's given proof to you by rising from the dead. That's a pretty big issue. Have you realised the personal significance of Jesus' rising from the dead for, for you, here now, 2,000 years on? Jesus is the writing on the wall for all humanity and he's either going to be a word of comfort or a word of terror. Let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus is either the final word of comfort and assurance to those who are humbly trusting him to be right with God and were therefore seeking to live in a response to him as king and saviour. If that is your attitude to Jesus, that writing on the wall is the most magnificent message I've ever seen. Or Jesus is a word of terror. It is the promise, the fearful promise of judgment for those who would reject or ignore him who think they can keep him at arm's length and pretend that we're tight. Friends, which is it for you? See, if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, or if you're someone who is keeping God at arm's length, yeah, I know about him, I just don't want him to have any impact on my life in the day-to-day the -day runnings. Or if you're someone who is still trying to work out what it means to trust Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, then can I implore you, don't do a Belshazzar. Don't put it off for another day or another night or another week. Because unless you've got a more accurate death calculator than the old respect one, you don't know when your day, last day is, do you? The only way to be prepared for the unexpected is to be prepared all the time. And so I'd implore you, pray and humble yourself. Ask God to humble you. Often that's our first problem, isn't it? I don't even know how to humble myself. Ask God to humble you. Ask God to help you acknowledge your lowly state before him. Ask God to help you to repent of thinking 
of treating him like he knows nothing and you know better. Ask him to give you the eyes and the ears to see and hear Jesus for who he is, followed by a willingness and an ability to live with him as your Lord of every aspect of your life from this day forward. To do less than that is sinful ignorance or sinful arrogance. It's to drastically misunderstand life and to miss out on the only life or the only option for a life well lived. It's found in Christ. What it means is if you are a Christian already here today, then don't leave here settled to accept the best the world can offer. Don't treat Jesus as the optional extra in your life. Just want to add a little bit of religion or take Jesus. Don't make your pursuit of success or money or power or position or comfort or ease or whatever other nice thing, as shiny or as appealing as they may seem, they will not last. Rather, feel the real challenge today. Feel the renewed renewed zeal and desire to hear these words from God on the day you meet him face to face. Make your life's ambition to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, you should have known better. And friends, that's got to start today. Restart today. And if necessary, restart tomorrow and the next day and the next day and every day praying that God would give me a clarity of vision to live with his priority orders as mine. Not he's the top of my priorities. And start today, folks, because unless you've got a more accurate death calculator, you don't know how soon you'll be meeting him either. And can I say, friends, this is what we are on about at WEC. We are on about seeing people and their lives radically transformed in increasing measure as they, came in, as they come into contact with the living God by his spirit through his word. So while we make a big song and dance about, I've probably kept you for 40 minutes now, maybe I shouldn't be looking at that. <laughs> it's why we make a big song and dance about digging into all the word so much. It's about sitting and listening and interacting with the living God by his spirit through his word and it all points to Jesus and we get to do that together. That is a massive, marvel, blessing, wonderful, good thing. The writing's on the wall, folks. Don't leave here confused or ignorant to the message. The God who holds your very breath in his hands is calling you to more through Jesus, for Jesus. Don't look the other way. There's going to be time for a cuppa and a chat um, after the service, a time to encourage each other in this desire. Just, just don't waste it. <laughs> How about I pray that we won't? Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, the heavens declare your glory. The stars proclaim the works of your fingers. In fact, through the plagues in Egypt even, the magic men recognised the finger of God among them. With your finger you inscribed the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone for Moses to deliver to your people in the desert. And even for us still today, your fingerprints exist all over our world. In creation, in our consciences, in the quiet places that no one else sees or hears. But most significantly and importantly... It's seen in Jesus 
And it's in Jesus that we can see your handiwork most clearly. Through him who exhibited all your authority over people, over nations, over nature, who by his own admission drove our demons by the finger of God to prove to people that your kingdom promises revolved around him. Father, don't let anyone here leave today and miss the writing on the wall in Jesus. And may he be for each of us the message of hope and forgiveness and assurance, not the fear and promise of death and judgment for those who look the other way. So God, sharpen our senses. Spirit, prompt our responses that we might honour Jesus, not just as a saviour, but as a Lord, our Lord with greater zeal, with greater confidence from this day forward until we meet you face to face. And we pray it for our good and we pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.